The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open the scriptures together. And in this third Sunday of Advent, we return again to the book of Revelation. And this morning we turn to chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. And so come with me into the revelation to John, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John as he saw it and wrote it down. Uh, We are in chapter 7 this morning. Now, just a quick aside. uh, After, uh, so we're halfway through our Advent uh, series, or really rather a third of the way through our Advent series. And at first I had a, a few people asking questions, you know, how in the world do you, do you do Advent in the book of Revelation? And I've been really encouraged and thankful that as we've looked through um, chapter 1 and chapters 4 and 5, uh, that we have together really been enjoying the delight of seeing Christ exalted and magnified as the reigning King of Kings and, and seeing how that connects to Advent has really been a wonderful thing as we draw together the whole story of God's salvation, both in Jesus' first coming humbly in Bethlehem and the reality of his present reign and one day second Advent. We've been trying to draw that story together. And I hope you've been following along and I hope you've been enjoying it while we're in chapter 7 this morning. But uh, as you're turning there, as you've made your way there, let me just tell you uh, a peculiar thing. Uh, about me is that uh, oftentimes uh, I love to watch Notre Dame football games. Notre Dame is my team, and that's really the only uh, sport and team that I really follow. Uh, But for the last several years, it's been difficult to actually watch the games live. So at various times, I have or even somebody else has recorded the game for me so I could watch it later. And the big challenge with that, of course, is when the game is over and you have not yet watched it and everybody else knows what the outcome of the game is, and you have to keep your ears closed and say, don't say a word to me, don't tell me, I want to be surprised, I want to know, I want to watch it just like I would if I was watching it live. Well, inevitably, of course, you know, somebody comes up and says, oh, great win, right? Like, oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad that they won, but I wanted to be surprised, and sometimes I would even be so anxious that I would check myself the final score before watching the game just to be assured if I was especially nervous. Now, why am I saying that? Uh, If we know the ending, it gives us more confidence in the process. If we know the ending, it gives us more confidence in the process, and even if I'm trying to not have my football game spoiled for me, it's good to know the outcome. Well, The book of Revelation is the great outcome of the history of the world and God's plan of salvation. And in the book of Revelation, God is showing by way of revelation to John, who then writes it to the church. Here is the good news of the outcome of human history and God's salvation. So we're going to see that again in chapter 7 this morning. So if you're there, let us pray and we'll hear the scriptures together. Oh Lord, we we pause now to say, Thy word is truth. Lord, uh, what you say is true. And what you reveal, you intend for us to not only know, but believe and receive it into our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as as we hear your word, as we hear it both read and preached, we pray, Lord, that we would be under the power of your word this morning. And so send your Holy Spirit upon us. The same Spirit that so moved John 
and showed him these wonderful revelations, may that same Spirit rest upon us to illuminate our minds, to comfort our hearts, give to us understanding, Lord, that we might not just read, but might also understand and also believe and be transformed by the Scriptures this morning. Come, Lord, and bless your word to us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. And now, uh, Revelation chapter 7. This is the word of God. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever and ever. It's chapters like this that make me love the Bible so much. I would say that about many, many, many chapters. A revelation that John has received from God is the history of his salvation, the history of humanity 
John receives the revelation, and it is the unfolding of the epic of ages that John sees. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, John was instructed by the Lord Jesus to write down the things that he saw, which also included the things that will be. Jesus says to John back in chapter 1, write both what is and what will be. And so what will be is that the conquering Lamb receives the scroll of human history and then unveils what is yet to come. Let us appreciate this point. That history is moving towards its appointed purpose. It is linear. We do not operate in a worldview that says that human history is cyclical to be repeated by way of reincarnation and repetition. That is not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is that history is linear. It is moving toward its appointed end as God brings all things into its fullness through Jesus Christ. That's where things are headed. History has purpose, meaning your life has purpose then as well. We saw that last week. Additionally, we saw last week in chapters 4 and 5 this glorious vision of the throne room of heaven. And it was glorious, wasn't it? With the angels, the four living creatures, the 24 elders surrounding the throne, crying out, holy, 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 and worshiping the Lord, both for His glory as Creator and worshiping the Lamb, who is also the Lion, the Lamb who was slain, the triumphant roaring lion resurrected in glory, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 and 5 show us the worship of heaven and the Almighty God both for His creation and His redemption. And now, John sees more of what will be as he is transferred forward into what is yet to come. We come this morning to chapter 7. Now, if we were doing a a more in-depth study of the book of Revelation, uh, we would do a deeper dive here, but let me just give you a little bit of context for chapter 7 by saying, look back with me to the very, very end of chapter 6. Now, uh, maybe in God's good timing, we'll come back to the book of Revelation in a fuller sense and go through the whole book, but in Advent, we're just picking up selections, of course, but at the end of chapter 6, the end of chapter 6 is a, a, very, uh, a very full and graphic picture of judgment, where you have a division that takes place between those who receive the sacrifice of the Lamb and those who do not. There are those who receive the sacrifice of the Lamb and give praise to the Lamb, and there are those who do not and who have to flee from the wrath that is to come. At the end of chapter 6, you find people crying out for rocks to fall upon them, running away. Look at the end of chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 16. These people, they call out to the mountains and rocks saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So you remember in chapters 4 and 5, there was this glorious presence of God in the throne and it was a delight to behold. But for those who do not receive it, they don't want to come near it. They want to run away from it. The end of chapter 6 ends with this question in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the question is, who can stand? Who can stand in the day of judgment? Who will stand? And chapter 7 answers the question. Who is it that will stand in the day of God's judgment? 
Is there a day of God's judgment? The answer is yes. What will we make of that day? Is another way of asking the question, who can stand? And again, the answer is found in chapter 7. Chapter 7 speaks of the church triumphant. The church triumphant, which is what we refer to the church as it's gathered together into heaven. We refer to the church two ways, but one of the ways is the church triumphant, where those who have run their race in faith and depart this life in faith are gathered together into that innumerable gathering of the heavenly hosts who praise Jesus Christ eternally. That's the church triumphant, resting from their earthly labors, casting off the burdens of the flesh, and entering into the glories of heavenly paradise in the church triumphant, the glorified church. So what we see in chapter 7 then is the church in certain triumph, gathered together in heaven. And chapter 7 then speaks of various things which are certain. In answer to the question, who can stand, you have three certainties in chapter 7. And we're going to walk through them together. The three certainties in chapter 7 are that we have a certain victory. There is a certain victory. Secondly, that there is a certain forgiveness And third, a certain future. Victory, forgiveness, and a future for the church as it's gathered together in heaven to give praise to its Savior. So, let's see that together. First of all, there is a certain victory, a certain victory for the church. Come with me again to chapter 7 and verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, the contrast here, again, in chapter 6 and 7, is that chapter 6 ends with people desperate to flee away from God's presence. But here in the middle of chapter 7, you have those who delight to be in God's presence. They are here standing before God, singing praise. Let's notice a few things about this crowd, this church triumphant. First of all, notice the size of the crowd. In verse 9, verse 9 says, There is this great multitude that no one can number. Now this is very helpful for us. This is very helpful uh, because just prior to this, in verses 9 and 10, just prior to this, John's vision goes on with this detail of this number of 144,000. And so everybody always wants to know what is that all about. And let me just lay my interpretive cards on the table right away and just tell you what it is and then explain it here. In chapter 7, when there is a numerical accounting in the first half of the chapter... And then in the second half of the chapter, in verses 9 and 10, those are the same groups. So what I mean by that is, is that when in verse 9 it speaks of a great multitude that no one can number, that it's the same multitude that is partially or symbolically numbered in verses 5 through 8. What does that mean? Let me, let me try to explain this. We need to take up this matter because everybody's fascinated by this number. Everybody's interested, especially for those of you who have ever had an encounter with a Jehovah's Witness, right? That number is very important to them. Jehovah's Witnesses have a very distinctive belief that only 
Literally, 144,000 people will reign with Christ in heaven eternally. There will be others who receive a kind of salvation, but it will never take them beyond the things of this earth. They will be saved, but they will remain here, and only the anointed, 144,000, will be in heaven. That is the distinctive belief of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So this is, this is a very important thing. So if you were to happen to have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, and um, from time to time people will, will say, hey, you know, these folks are out, and they're wonderful people to, to visit with. They're very kind. Well, ask them. The next time someone knocks on your door from the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witness, ask them, are you one of the 144,000? And they will say, no, not me, not me. Couldn't possibly. That's only for the most exalted and anointed one. Well, then ask them a second question. Would you like to meet one of them? And then introduce yourself to them. If you're a Christian, introduce yourself to them and say, I am of the 144,000, and just see where the conversation goes from there. Because 144,000 is a description of the whole church. As with all numbers in the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, 144,000 is meant to be a symbol of completion. Now, everyone, everyone who knows me knows that I'm terrible at math, <laughs> but I can do this kind of math. What you have in the number 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. I checked on my calculator. 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000, representative of what? The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, representative of the ages of the church in its Old and New Testament. Remember how in Revelation chapter 4 there were the 24 thrones of the elders representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, those 24 thrones? Well, here you have 12 and 12 reappearing, but times 1,000, a number that represents absolute completeness, absolute completion and perfection. It is representative and symbolic of the gathered church in all of its fullness. And the numbers of people that are accounted in verses 5 through 8, which is very uh, paradigmatic, it is the same as you see early on in the book of Numbers where Israel is taken as a census and the warriors of Israel are called before the tabernacle and then counted. This is something of a census of the people of God before the throne. And in one place, John attempts to count them. In the next breath, he says in verse 9, there are a great multitude that no one can number. But the folks of verses 5 through 8 are the same group in verse 9 of the great multitude. The point is, is that around God's throne is the gathering of the people of God, the church of God, in every age, both from the period of the Old Testament as representative of the tribe of Israel and from the period of the New Testament as representative of the apostles. Whenever you came in, whenever you came into the church, you come in by faith, whether you are an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint, it does not matter. This is the church triumphant in heaven. And who are they? Look at their makeup again in verse 9. The makeup of the crowd. There's a diverse crowd from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, which is a very important thing for us to remember, especially when we oftentimes go about assuming that Christianity is a Western reality. Christianity has its roots in the Eastern world. The Middle East, 
where the Christian church actually has its greatest population in the global south, especially Africa, where Christianity is becoming really a minority religion in the West. It booms in other places of the world. And the book of Revelation reminds us that gathered together in heaven is a church that is not homogeneous, meaning we don't all look the same. And that's a beautiful thing. Because the expression of God's grace is found among every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And the same Savior. A multiplicity of diversity of the church and yet the same Savior. That's what the book of Revelation is saying here. And look at what they're doing in verses 9 through 10. They stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. They're worshiping in heaven, just as we saw in chapters 4 and 5. And what do they say? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This scene reminds us, you see the waving of the palm branches. It reminds us of the, the triumphal entry and Jesus entering into Jerusalem where on His first advent He has come humbly riding on the foal of a donkey, representative of royalty but in humility. The contrasting picture is Jesus returning on a white horse in military victory. We'll see that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But for now, we find the people waving their palm branches the king has come. He has won his battle. And the people celebrate the victory. And the angels join in in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they all fall on their faces before the throne. And they worship God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This is the innumerable, diverse crowd of heaven, the church triumphant, celebrating, in verse 10, the salvation of the Lamb. The salvation of God. The plan of salvation. This, this salvation that is sung about in heaven is the salvation that is told of all through the Scriptures. When God called Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation. Abraham, look to the stars and count them. If you can count their multitude, so shall your offspring be. And there you have a parallel multitude in the book of Revelation. Innumerable as the stars are innumerable. The people that God has gathered together to be His people. It is the same salvation that the angels sung about on the plains of Bethlehem on the night when Christ was born. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among whom His favor rests. It's this salvation the salvation that Jesus brings through His righteous life, His sacrificial death, His glorious resurrection, and His heavenly ascension, now in His present reign, receiving the praise of the salvation that He has won for His people, the salvation of the Lamb. And chapter 7 represents the fact that God will complete His plan. God will finish what He started. And that's important for you and I to know. Why? Because you and I in various ways have projects that we leave incomplete. Right? They nag us when you look at them and you say, oh man, I just you know, you get sidetracked, you end up doing something else, you don't go back to what you said you were going to do, what begun in such earnest zeal fades away and it ends up unfinished for a long time. And the Bible tells us God is not like that. God finishes what He starts 
God completes his salvation and it results in the church's certain victory. Well, the certain victory of the church, but also expanding on this, there is a certain forgiveness that's presented here as well. Look again at verses 13 and 14. As John sees this, verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? He's asking about that innumerable gathering from verse 9. Who are these great multitude? In verse 14, the elder, uh, I said to him, Sir, you know. Sorry, the elder asked the question. John responds, Sir, you know. And he asked me, These, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice that there is twice an emphasis on robes. Who are these clothed in white robes? And the answer, they have washed their robes. These are those who have washed their robes and made them white. Let us understand that there is no place in heaven for soiled robes. There's no place in heaven for dirty garments. Soiled robes, dirty garments, sin disqualifies us from standing before God's throne. And that would be only bad news except for who Jesus Christ is and what He has come to do. But let's be very clear about this because the Bible is absolutely clear about the nature of sin and how sin cannot be tolerated by the holy, holy, holy God. The prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1, verse 13, Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 5, how can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We have on our own, by our own sinful human nature, tattered, dirty, torn rags within ourselves. But the church in heaven is not dressed that way. They're dressed in these beautiful white robes. And they wear white robes not because they're born with white robes. Not because their tattered robes have been made white by their own efforts or by their own good deeds. They have white robes because they have been, in verse 14, washed. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now that's also symbolic, of course, isn't it? You don't wash a garment in blood and have it be white. And we understand that. John is saying, though, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what a Christian is. Christ Himself is the Lamb and it is His shed blood on the cross for the payment of our sins which makes us able to stand no longer in our tattered and stained robes of sin but receiving from Christ the perfection of His righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins so that rather than our polluted and torn and tattered rags of sin and shame, they're cast off and you have a white robe pure white as the forgiven Christian person, able to stand in the presence of God without shame. 
Listen to the way the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The church stands in God's presence in white robes with worship and sincerity. And we can stand now through faith in Jesus Christ. And as a Christian believer, you will stand one day in His presence. That's what this is saying. Certain forgiveness. But he also says they've had an experience. In verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now we have this certain victory, yes, and we have this certain forgiveness, but we also experience, the Bible says, this tribulation. Now much is made about this, especially in the book of Revelation. And just as I try to do with the number 144,000, let me try to be as clear as possible with the use of the word tribulation. The Bible speaks of two ages, the present evil age and the age to come. The age of tribulation and the age of glory. The age of tribulation is now. The age of glory is yet to come. And these Christian believers have made their way through and have come out of the age of tribulation to enter into the glory of heaven. We have a certain victory and a certain forgiveness, yes, but that doesn't mean we don't struggle here on earth existing in a time of tribulation and trial. They have their victory through struggle. Now remember how I said that it was aggravating for me to get the details of a football game, right, while watching it and knowing the end. Well, the thing about that is when you're watching a game and you know the final score, it's amazing how different your reactions become when certain events take place in the midst of the game itself. If I'm watching the game live and in a crucial moment something bad happens, fumble, interception, the other team goes up, it seems crushing and the defeat is certain and you get all despondent and maybe turn it off because you can't watch it anymore. But when I'm watching the game and I know the ending, the fumble, the interception, the other team goes up, the occurrences that would have seemed crushing are now seen as just part of the narrative until the end comes and I know the final victory provided that the team wins. Now just by way of observation here, it's amazing how the Bible encourages you as a Christian that even in the midst of your trials and sufferings and tribulations, that there is a certainty about how the story ends up which causes us to live with more confidence in the here and now because we know the end. That doesn't undermine the reality of your experience of suffering. It doesn't undermine or make less real the experiences of trial and tribulation, but it does say that you will come through them. These are they that have come out. They have made it through because God has brought them through. When you know the ending, it causes you to live with confidence in the present, even if the present is trial. These are they that have come through. There is a certain victory and a certain forgiveness. And finally, there is a certain future, a very certain future for the gathered church, the church triumphant. In verse 15, we find them, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Heaven is a place of new service. They are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night 
in his temple. They serve him with worship. They serve him with praise. They serve him with delight. Heaven is a place of new service for the church where all of our desires and hopes are fulfilled as our deepest longings to to know Christ and make him known are realized before his very throne. Heaven is a place of new service. It's a place of new protection. Second half of verse 15. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That metaphor is all through the scriptures, it's oftentimes used as a, a bird spreading out its wings and covering its young children to shelter them, shelter them from heat, shelter them from the elements that would harm them and being protected. The constant weariness of this world that you are constantly barraged by. Heaven is a place of shelter. To be covered by God's own presence. They shall neither hunger nor more nor thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. And it's a place of new service, new protection, and also new joy. Verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just as Jesus said He would do to cause streams of living water to well up within you and lead you to that place of eternal life and there to wipe away every tear from your eyes. The sorrows that we have experienced in life in a fallen world in which we have tribulation and trials and suffering, the shame that we have carried, our sorrows, these things will go away. Jesus Christ has come to make everything sad, untrue. Sorrow and sighing flee away, death shall be no more, and God will wipe away with a gentle hand, as it were, every tear. Here's why that's significant. It doesn't mean there won't be tears. It means that the tears will be wiped away. So that in the the reality of your sorrow, God comes to you and says, I know. And then wipes them away forever. What this is is a picture of the church. The church triumphant. A church with certain uh, future, certain victories, certain forgiveness. And John has given this to you and I to give us confidence. Because the early church needed confidence in their days of trials and suffering. And Jesus has come into the world to accomplish this picture. And the reason why you and I need to see it and believe it and and know it is because this scene of the gathered church in heaven is a reality now. They're the church triumphant. Those that have gone before us. But we also speak of the church as the church militant. You and I. Still here. Not yet in glory before Christ. And the church militant needs to know that there is a church triumphant in heaven. And the worship of the church triumphant in heaven is to infuse you with hope and courage that you will be brought into that scene one day. But in the meantime, press on in faith. Press on in hope. The Bible is saying to you here that Christ has come into this world to Make this scene a reality and bring you to it one day.
Well, friends, get a sight of it and may it stir your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you so showed this incredible revelation to John that we, the church, might receive it and be encouraged. Lord, we need it. We need to be encouraged. Uh, We so often are unsure and yet the future rests in your hand. Oh Lord, there is no safer place than that. So may we be content to be there as well and there to have peace and joy. Bless your word to us and may it strengthen us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.